Kia ora and welcome to the Wine Marlborough podcast. Whether you're curious about what makes a great wine or what's going on in the soil beneath the vines, come and explore the fascinating world of grape growing and winemaking in New Zealand's biggest wine growing region. This podcast is made possible thanks to the support of River Sun Nursery. I'm your host, Sophie, editor of Wine Press Magazine. Wine Press Magazine and this podcast are produced by Wine Marlborough, an industry association working to grow, educate, protect, and celebrate the region's wine growers. Today I'm joined by Marcus Pickens, General Manager of Wine Marlborough. Morena. Morena. Hello. How you doing? Great. So Marcus, as you know, in this podcast today, I'm talking to Alan Scott about the past 50 years in Marlborough's wine industry. It officially all began on August 24, 1973, when Montana's Frank Jukic planted a vine with a gold coin beneath it. But um, Alan talks about being at work on the 17th, so before then, and, <laughs> and not actually being invited to that event, which is funny looking back on it now. So um, at the time, Frank talked about how he predicted that wines from here would become world famous. Do you think he had any idea of where it was going? Oh, I just, um, I love that that bold kind of um, look into the future. And and no, of course not. No one, no one could have foreseen that. And I, I'm I conscious to remind people of that today. That you know there are a lot of people who were taking a punt. Um, they believed in something, and um, we're all the beneficiaries of that. Absolutely. So um, Wine Marlborough is the body organisation that looks after or... Yeah, yeah, helps and yeah celebrates our success in some ways. And what are you up to at the moment? Oh gosh, we've just been um, an exciting project. We're looking at um, Marlborough Wines sort of story and, and uh, it's all part of this 50-year work. It's time to dig deep and have a look at that, examine what the um, components are that make us special and... Uh, and use that to tell our story to the world and how we tell that story. Um, it's so exciting. It's mm. just energised me beyond um, belief because there's so much confidence, hope, and um, and keenness for the next step. Mm, so you've actually spoken to members, wine growers, wine companies, about what they see as being the the ethos are at the heart of, of Marlborough Wine. What yes, are some of the things that they've We said? have. We had um, some focus groups and we also conducted uh, a, an extensive survey. We got really good engagement. Um, I think it is that sort of uh, respect for our past but but real belief in the future, where we're heading, um, a sort of happy coincidence of, of our place and the people that make special things happen. And, and there's something about this, everyone has talked about this special character of Marlborough that kind of binds everyone together and, and uh, we're really connected and um, we share our successes and our and to some extent the things that haven't gone well in, in the wine community to help propel us forward. Mm, it's well, uh, so cool. Oh, what a nice community. And everyone talks about how collegial it is all the time and has been for 50 years, which is not true of every industry. Not at all. many industries probably. Not at all. So some of the data that came out with the um, twenty. 23 Vintage Review, talking about our harvest, which is a little bit down on last year, but last year was so large. Um, and they also were talking about the um, previous year's export sales, which really gives an indication of how successful Marlborough and Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc has been and the impact it's had on New Zealand wine, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's uh, phenomenal, really. Um, I think, uh, you know, it does contribute a lot. Marlborough does really drive along the New Zealand wine industry. Everyone plays a part. 
Um, and we're, I think we're about 75% of all the wine um, exports from New Zealand now. So, you know, a significant dollar value behind it. And uh, I think we're, we're looking at all those other varieties. How do we tell their stories too? Because that, that came out in this, um, this uh, review we're doing. You know, there's a there's Sauvignon Blanc is our hero, but there's still just so many other fantastic wines made beneath that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I love that, you know, companies talk about how really they could make 100% Sauvignon Blanc, couldn't they? Yeah. And they could sell it all. Uh, yes. But they don't. They have these these other um, varieties that they really champion and um, that are amazing. Yeah, I think that's so true. And it, and it can easily get lost in this, uh, you know, the, the sort of hype and the fame and the um, reach that Sauvignon mm. Blanc has. Yeah. So it's a bit of our job to make it make them make them all heroes. Yeah, that's right. I, I um, we got some of that data in the latest Wine Press magazine, and uh, as part of that, I spoke to James McDonald, who's a director on the um, Marlborough Wine Growers Board, and also the winemaker at Hunter's Wines, which has been part of the wine mm. story for so long. And he was talking about how rare it is to have a variety that is synonymous with a region. You know, it's only happened a few times around the world in this really long history of wine, and Marlborough's done it in just 50 years. It's extraordinary. Oh, it's a, such a such a short amount of time. Um, you know, it feels feels like a while when you've been working in it, but um, really, <laughs> in the history of viticulture, it's nothing. Mm. So, Alan Scott, uh, today's interview, he um, he talks a little bit about how nobody could have known what was going to happen when they planted those first grapes, and then later when they tried um, Sauvignon Blanc. He um, started working in August 1973, out just a farm boy out doing some work um, on Montana's plantings in the Brancourt Valley. And in the past 50 years, his um, the success of his own brand, Alan Scott Wines, and his own journey has been quite an interesting parallel story to that of the wine industry. Uh, a couple of years ago, he wrote his um, biography, Mem- uh, Marlborough Man, which kind of is a story of Marlborough wine as well as his own yarn. So um, really great to have a chat to him. He was your... Lifetime Achievement Award. Last he year, was, he? yes, he was. He was along with Mark Allen. He've uh, certainly, yeah, not before time, inducted um, Alan Scott. He's achieved so much, and we'll uh, always be promoting people to that list. Of course, there's so many people who have made contributions, and uh, we we induct them at the Mobile Wine Show Celebration Lunch, which uh, this year we're we're changing it up because it's uh, going to become that plus a 50 year celebration, so a really special one in yeah. November. Brilliant, look forward to it. Okay, well, um, enjoy the interview. Good morning, Alan. Thank you so much for coming in today. My pleasure. Thanks, Sophie. It's, um, it's a, obviously an interesting time for you to come in, cusp of August, and this is this month marks 50 years since Marlborough's wine industry, modern wine industry, um, took off, so... Pretty incredible time for Marlborough. I don't know where that time has gone. It's just flowing, flowing by. It is horribly quick. And you've been here for all of it. But before we get into that, uh, we like to begin with 15 words that people might not know about you. Well, seeing you're looking at a microphone, I, one of my first thoughts of a career choice was actually into, um, into broadcasting. And huh. I actually applied three times um, and was rejected three times. So it was a very short-lived Notion. Well, perhaps someone will hear this and, you know, you can kickstart that career aspiration all over a day. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I just want to set the scene a little bit. Say this morning you drive out of your 
away down your driveway, away from your beautiful home into the Wairo Plain, maybe um, down up, up the Wairo Valley or to the Awatiri Valley. What do you see these days? Well, it's just grapevines, 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 which is um, which is great. Something we never ever thought would happen, um, and every I think everybody else probably thought it would never happen, and uh, but it has, and um, and you couldn't wish for something better to happen for Marlborough because we might have else been caught up in the dairying phenomena, and we would have been a different province then. So mm. it's a wonderful, wonderful thought, mm. and mostly a sea of Sauvignon these days, but. Uh... Yeah, and who would have known? Because we, the first sticks we planted were were obviously Moloturga or Riesling Sylvana, as we used to call them, um, and we had all those boxes and was interspersed with Cabernet Sauvignon and Pinot Noir. Uh, and a few other weird varieties. Um, I think we even tried some Chasselas and um, and um, Palomino as well, which uh, were long shots, which were already planted in Gisborne, um, mainly for bulk volume. So when those sticks were going in, back in uh, August 1973, can you explain then what this region looked like? Well, it was completely different. It was mostly sheep and small seeds, um, you know, paddocks of garlic, of course. Uh, Lucerne for the Lucerne Mill, because I, I, when I first came up, I worked at the Lucerne Mill um, as a truck driver, um, you know, c- cutting the, the Lucerne, bringing it into the mill. Um, and that was, uh, and just sort of seeing the, the landscape being fresh from, from um, Canterbury, it was a different, it was a similar landscape, but different in many respects, is that there were just sort of crops and sheep and the thing, everything into interspersed. So, um, and I, I guess there was a fair amount of apathy towards the grapes when they did arrive with people that were having to forego their sheep and their, their sheep and their crops and things that they already had. Yeah, it was an interesting change. So as you mentioned, you grew up in Harden in North Canterbury, a tiny town. I think you went to one school for your entire formal education there. Yep. But then yep. uh, a different kind of education, following your dad, a stockman, and in the shearing sheds. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that time? Um, yeah, no regrets. It was good. I, you know, I guess like most farmer's son, we had no idea where we'd end up. I was one of three brothers. Um, ironically, I was probably the only one that was really destined to be a farmer more than anything. So um, I really liked the high country more than anything. So you know, my first work was working on a on a not a high high country station but a hill country station and I loved that sort of work of being amongst the hills and the tussocks and the Madagari and um and um and it was hard work actually funnily enough it, it wasn't full-time work but a lot of 2 a.m starts for mustering to start the six mm-hmm. o'clock to be that start I, I sort of loved that lifestyle and then I fell into sharing by accident because it was um a job to do. I was actually asked um, if I wanted to join a gang. They were short of a person. Um, it was a different thing to learn. Uh, it was a lot more older guys in there, some of them very wise, some of them very stupid, some of them <laughs> had had um, problems, um, um, and uh, which, were, which were mostly liquid. Um, <laughs> but they're all good blokes, 100% good blokes, no, no red bags. So. That builds the work ethic. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
And your plan was to be a farmer, to go to the high country? Um, yeah, that was what I just had to accumulate um, to get some funds together so we could actually buy a farm of sorts. And, um, and it would have been a flat farm then, I would imagine. I don't think we would have been able to afford a hill country and they weren't really available. So it would have been more more um, along the lines that I was used to. Mm. And then you came to Marlborough. I recall you saying that when you left Harden in your mid-20s with Cathy, your wife, uh, people saying, oh, you'll be back, you won't go far. Turns out they were wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but it was um, – I, I sort of half expected it myself. We, we came to Marlborough because it's Cathy's home province. She was third or fourth or fifth generation, so it's her home province. She didn't really want to come herself. Um, she, but she didn't. She hated where we were living because we were miles from any sort of civilization, really. And so, and um, and she was amongst. Um, uh, it was very hard to get to know people when I knew when you moved into a new town. And and as I was only a shearer then, um, nobody really wanted to to be sort of best friends. So it was actually awkward for her. But um, but she eventually, when we came back, um, she eventually settled in and, um, and um, you know, we enjoyed the life, lifestyle. It was mm. different making new friends for me. Um, I, I sort of half expected to be going back, but, but um, I'm glad we didn't. Mm. You know. and, and perhaps you might have if – so you, you were driving at that point when you first got here, is that right? Um, I, well, I, I did a bit of everything. I was in um, because I was actually welcomed because there were a lot of lifestyle blocks in the, around the area and they all had a small mob of sheep. And oh. So I, I would go and share them in, in um, days off and then we, I worked a night shift or afternoon shifts for the Lucerne meal. So um, so I was able to fit them both in. And Cathy was a nurse, so um, she went back nursing. Mm. Um and then 1973, August, what, did you see a job of it? How did that um, come about? Um, no, it's a really funny, funny story, actually, because I, when I came up, I was playing rugby for old boys and, um, and of course, the, uh, the Marlborough team um, did so well in 73. And that with club competition, we did very well. Um, and um, and Kathy's folks were away on an overseas trip, and when they arrived back in Christchurch, we said, "Oh, we're just going to pop on to the before we go home. We're going to go to the the Lancaster Park to the match, Rainfully Shield match." And um, and Kathy's dad said, "Well, it's a bit of a waste of time." When and I said, "Oh, I think you might be surprised." And um, you know, the rest is history. Um, and uh, which was really good for him, being a very staunch Mulberryan. And, um, and then when we came home, uh, the, the news had broken about the, the vineyards and everything coming, which was intrigued because he was in, uh, one of the managers of Pungal Guinness here then. And so, and ironically, had employed John Maris um, prior as an agent. And uh, so, when I when he got back, he rang John and said, "Look, is, is there any jobs for this guy?" My son-in-law of mine that might that might fit, and John said, "Yeah, join the join join the team." So that was my introduction to the to um to the Montana but, troop. Because troop. of course, John Maris um, negotiated the purchase of the land for yes, Montana yeah, yeah, for yeah, Frank yeah. Kitch back in the day. Yeah, changing the landscape somewhat. Yeah, yeah he's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> and so yeah. you got the job. You went up the Brancott Valley. Yeah, what had been farmland, and yes. like, how many of you are out there? Um, I think there was probably 80, 90 folks up there of various uh, shapes and sizes and sexes and everything else. And it was a, 
um, they'd already started pulling the fences and starting the cultivating. So there was a sort of an early crew, which were mostly sort of the farm workers of the, of the farms and everything. Um, so I joined the planting crew, which was made up of a two tractors, um, a cable and with strategically marked, um, markers on it and um and um we'd wave a flag and or somebody wave a flag and we'd poke these damn sticks in the ground um and and we had all these weird boxes with these funny names written on them so um and so we had no idea what exactly was going on and just then it started to develop uh you know these days there's so much technology but i've seen images of someone standing on the back of a ute holding a gun using the scope to line up the um the vine rows yeah, <laughs> that exactly. kind of thing. Yeah. and that and the whole thing uh, the whole i think there was a about three, 400 hectares actually planted all done with that and, mm. and we started with i think the original lines were probably um 70 80 mm. no, no, i wouldn't be that many we'd be probably about 40 people on the line um with a bucket uh, with um with um uh, a, a liquid, a rooting uh, hormone liquid in there, plus water, and then bang. It's always been stories the of them being upside down. Is that true? Uh, yeah, it's probably there would be a percentage because some people didn't really care, I guess, to be honest. And and then some uh, were, um, you know, the bundles would go in upside down, and so if you didn't look, you could easily did because it was it was easy to tell because obviously the buds go one way on a cutting, so you you know, only. It's matter, but when you've got, as you know, if you're employing a lot of people, mm. you know, not everybody has their heart in the job. You'd actually planted the valley behind your childhood home in trees, hadn't you? So you had green fingers. Um, yeah, not necessarily. I would, yeah, we planted, but I did it with seed um, mm. because pine trees were, God bless their souls, were um, the up and coming thing in the Marlborough Sounds, and they were just desperate for for pine trees um and one of our friends because i was growing small seeds or well, we were growing small seeds as well and uh he was also an agent and he was privately uh, planting pine trees and so he suggested we plant them and um which we did and which we took them all out we actually they grew to about um sort of 500 and then we just plowed them in because grapes were you know much more Oh yeah, yes, but yeah. growing up in Harden, didn't you do some treatment? No, um, no, 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 not mm. really. Oh, okay. I only um, I, I'd always my mother had green fingers, so um, I, I I was really intrigued with natives. I loved native trees, so we planted a gully behind our. Uh, we had a, a a gully or a creek running through the farm into the Wiper River, and um, and we just planted. Well, I I planted a lot of transplanted a lot of mm. um, native plants into the into the gully, which is still there and now sort of. Um, I was visit looking at it the other day. Actually, I was thinking you know, that was pretty unique, really, because yeah. it's probably sixty, seventy years old, and it's um, it's really straggly and not like real bush at all, as it should be. Certainly, you know how which way a stick's meant to go and to grow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm Jeff Thorpe. I'm the um, the founder and managing director of River Sun Nursery up in Sunny Gisborne. Yeah, I think one of the key things in terms of what's different about River Sun compared to other suppliers of vines, and I guess a big part of our focus, um, I've always believed in climate change, even when I was a 17-year-old um, in a vegetable garden, 
So I've been watching that space very closely and we have invested hugely um, in the last, particularly in the last 12 to 14 years in um, risk mitigation. So, you know, we have, and that's seen us buy land, which is 50 metres above the river. It's on volcanic ash. It's um, with intensive subsurface drainage. We have intensive artificial shelter. We have a dam and overhead frost protection, uh, sprinklers. So, you know, the season has really tested people, but the vines look amazing. The um, Yeah, everything looks, looks totally normal. So I think that speaks volumes to um, our huge investment into risk mitigation, which is something, yeah, you know, I encourage growers when they're talking to other nurseries to look around and, and, and see what what they've done in that space. Yes, we supply grafted grapevines to the wine industry, which are certified, therefore virus tested, physical specifications, trueness to type. But, um, you know, the other big thing is we deliver. And that's, you know, we've got clients rely heavily on us for all of those things, but actually, that, you know, that we do have the vines at the end of the season, whatever Mother Nature throws at us. Um, by 1975, you and Kathy were planting your own Molothurgo on yes. Old Rimmick Road yes. and um, among the first 10 Montana wine growers. At that point, were you starting to get an inkling of, of where this thing could be going? Um, I think so. I, w- I was really lucky because one of the key people that came down uh, to, to look after the vineyards for Montana was um, Jim Hamilton, who uh, was the Montana... Um, manager at the Mangatangi Vineyard in South Auckland, and um, and Jim had sort of had a similar sort of background where he had come from a, a, a dairying farm, and and then all of a sudden this outfit came and bought three hundred acres and planted it all in grapes in the middle of a dairying country or you know South Auckland country, and um, but he he got really entrenched in the whole thing and was really good. So he would, Jim came down really as the expert and he was sort of the manager. Um, and he and John, uh, John was administration or Maris was administration manager. And John, Jim was the sort of practical. I, I've forgotten what his title was, but he was sort of looked upon as being the boss. Um, and uh, and then the background was Wayne Thomas who. Had, turn up usually at the wrong time every time and um, this is probably one of the most contentious thing is that the three guys didn't really get on that well Mm. and there were a bit bit of um, um, I don't know what you'd call it um, differences of opinion I suppose Mm. the the thing was about technique. Jim was the most practical and he he was really good. He and I clicked. We were really good. He and he mentored me. I, you know, this day I'm really grateful for, for everything that he told me, taught me. And he had to go through the same process where he, you know, literally bought his own books about viticulture, about varietals and, you know, everything like that. Um, so he no, to me he he was really the forefather of the sort of the wine industry here in many respects mm. in terms of practicality, yeah. And it, between the two of you, did you you saw the potential? Um, yeah, then I, then we we were able to talk. We became friendly. They lived in the homestead at at um, Fairhall, mm. and um, and. Uh, I guess like moving into a new place, it was hard to make friends, and so we became 
quite friendly in many respects. So, um, and um, and so the, I mean, I mean um, there were probably pretty boring conversations to most people because <laughs> um, I would pepper with questions, and and you know we, that's all we ever talked about. Was, that's that's what it was about, and then you could see, well, this is going to be. This is going to work. This has got to work. If it's going to work, you know, you have to apply yourself. And I think that was uh, where it was. It just got a bit wider. Mm. Um, I mean, there were other key people, like um, uh, when they uh, – because the, the block was – I think it was about three or four months for planting, and by about uh, November, December, they decided to cut it into three or four, but the third, the fourth um, – Ended up being shut down, but they cut it into three sort of territories. These which are was, Montana blocks. Yeah, which yeah. was uh, Brancott, Fairhall, and um, and uh, Middle Rennick Road, which was always referred to as Gills um, Block. And um, and there were three of us were appointed the supervisors of those blocks. Um, I was on Fairhall. Uh, Dick Simpson was on um, on um, Brancott. Um, and which was then called Waldron's because the Waldron's actually owned the farm. Mm-hmm. And over at uh, Middle Reddick Road Girls was Clive Drummond. And so, and so we sort of collaborated together. Uh, we were like, we we're probably the, um, probably in hindsight, we were the ones that looked like we sort of had the whole situation in hand mm-hmm. and wanted to grow. And then Dick, I think, became the first Montana grower. You know, just because he had a little piece of land on the corner of um, of Brancott Road and Middle Rack Road, mm. and um, and so he planted that, and and it was a bit of a hoo ha because oh, can my poise do that, do that, and then I think John started to plant his block, John Maris, yeah, mm. and then and then we did. I think we we're about the third or fourth at about the same time that um, poor old Phil. Rose was going through the Rose family were going through the hassles with um, getting consents. Um, um, yeah, not yeah. everybody wanted no. fines. Um, no, we became teen and we were a pretty tight group actually. We yeah. were, you know, we were, I thought we we collaborated well together, worked well together, and um, and then it wasn't until. Uh, Wayne Thomas appeared with his uh, Penfolds banner on the mind that the wine industry exploded and um, just went. And then, you know, everybody was putting their hand up thinking, well, this is not a bad deal. Well, can we grow? Can we grow? Can we grow? And then and so- in the 80s, of course, people start seeing that Sauvignon Blanc has got some real potential. And the, there's the at the same time, I think there's a bit of a domestic glut and so the government paid for a vine pool scheme which enabled lots of companies to pull out their Molothurgo and put in Sauvignon Blanc. But you were you were just yeah. planting a Sauvignon Blanc vineyard from scratch then, um, weren't you? We were I mean no we, we were planting pretty much a bit of everything. Um Chardonnay still had we thought had potential as well. Um and a lot of the contract growers had Chenon Blanc, which um uh, you know was a good variety to have. Um and in, in many respects, um, if if it had been handled right, Chenin Blanc could have been the Sauvignon Blanc for mm. for um, for um, for Marlborough, but um, it wasn't. Uh, a Pinot Noir was starting to appear on the horizon as well, so mm. um, so it wasn't all Sauvignon Blanc. Um, you know, most of the contracts I think that came out were either for Chardonnay, um, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, um, 
maybe a little bit of Riesling still, just straight Riesling. Riesling hadn't been killed off at that stage, so um, there was still a, a little bit of a requirement for that and, and Pinot Noir. Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a, obviously a lot happening over this time, a lot of hard work. Um, Kathy's still working at hospital and working in the business, you working for Corbin's yes. and in the business, yeah. planting your own vines, yeah. and then in 1990 you establish your own label. Yep. Reluctantly with the Alan Scott no. Yeah, with the lo- Alan <laughs> Scott logo. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't, I, mean, I had a full scap page of alternative names and... <laughs> Yeah, they said, you know what, you know, everybody sort of knows who you are, so we just call it Alan Scott. She said, I'm not that really fussed about it, but I think you'll regret if you don't have some recognition to who you are. And so, yeah, this, so it was what mm-hmm. it was. Struggle with it, to be honest, because it's sort of hard hearing your name being other people talking about your name. And I, that took me a while to get used to it. But um, it just, even now with... Um, with family taking the winery over and, you know, talking like Alan Scott as a commodity is it's sort of um, – it's it's good. I've got used to it, so I, I know, but you still cock one ear up when it, when it <laughs> sort of happens. And, and it's not just here, of course, in 29 markets around the world, so everyone's yeah. got your name in the mouth. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, talking about your children taking over the business, so your daughter Sarah and your son Josh – have now manage it yes. um, between them. Um, what was it like for you raising your children in this industry, having been raised, you know, with your stockman father? And um, it was probably completely different because they they had a different line to go to. Um, I was um, the youngest in the family. I was significantly younger than the rest of my family. My nearest, um, my sister's nearest, being ten years old. Um, older than me, so I, w- I was virtually an only child, so um, as my wife, Kathy, points out all the time, you know, you're acting like you are a small child. <laughs> um, and um, I can see it now, of course. Um, and so I really sort of had to do my own entertainment and my own thoughts and my you know, things, so I never, we never really did that terribly much as a family. My dad wasn't really an outgoing person, so um, so um, so we didn't really have that many friends close up. We had other family members, but further away. But it was quite different. Whereas our kids, um, you know, grew up in the community. Um, you know, very much involved. They went off to boarding school for secondary education, and then uh, and we. I, I mean, I guess we had high hopes that. Uh, they would achieve a hell of a lot more than we did with education. I got, you know, far a school suit and failed it, and that was about as far as I got. Um, and we'd sort of hoped that they would go beyond that and get a university education of some sort. Um, never really thinking that they would go into the wine business. We never really planned it that way. Um, but but we sort of made that exception that they wanted to come back into the business. So we were fantastic. Um, and I don't think they even had a second thought. So, hmm. um, so it'll be interesting to see what the next generation do. Well, it is interesting that the wine industry has enabled a lot of intergenerational um, land succession here, which wouldn't necessarily be the case, or unlikely be the case probably if it hadn't been yeah. for wine. Yeah. Mm. Um, no, it's good. And it's sort of amazing what they sort of um, like, 
I know I still have natural skills as a as a stock person working with sheep and being a shearer and all that sort of stuff. I have that sort of natural um, um, ability with them, and 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 I had to learn everything basically with with um, uh, with viticulture. And um, but I can see the kids just everything just happens naturally. They know. Mm-hmm. They know. You ask a silly, you ask a question nine times out of ten, they'll, they'll refer to it as a silly question. Because they were probably out in the vines yep. and in the winery when they were just little, were they? Yeah, right from you know, so they could walk virtually. So, so um, what's the industry meant to you? I mean, you're not a high country farmer. You're not a radio guy. No. no. <laughs> Uh, it it means a lot. I, I I think the biggest thing is to see to know that you know probably when we started um, in the bigger picture, it was probably only worth a couple of hundred thousand dollars of export um, problem. And then when I think about it, in my time at Corbin's, um, you know, I was lucky enough. Corbin's were then exporting. This is back in the early eighties, exporting then products and had a permanent. Um, they had, um, well, Don Macy was the original um, sales rep in in based in California, and then Jim and then um, uh, Bob Campbell took over oh, his really? role, and that's where sort of Bob. Um, although Bob was in the when I first started at Montana, Bob was in the um, in the bean counting department at Montana, and then um, and then he got he took over the sales job with um, from Don in California, and he had a couple of years over there. I mean, it was a battle, but it was a very 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 small. But that was the first step for um, the wine industry, New Zealand wine industry exporting, mm-hmm. and then uh, but. Honestly, to see it grow from that, I, th- I think it was a couple hundred thousand when we, when we things kicked off here, and now you know what is it, two something, two, two half billion, yeah. two point four billion yeah. in the latest and count, and I think Marlborough accounts for something like seventy five percent of that. Yeah. So, so who would have actually thought that that would actually just be the, um, be the, um, you know, the one of the cornerstones of the, of the New Zealand economy is amazing. Really, mm. that's probably the biggest. Biggest um, thing that I get from from the industry, really, I think. Mm. So, how will you be um, celebrating fifty years? This August, um, I'm going to be out of the country. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> you'll be able to find your wine over there. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping to be in in, um, in Iceland of all places. So, um, so we might be we'll about to start a new wine industry in Iceland. <laughs> Um, 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 yeah, it was, it was purely coincidental and accidental, really. But, um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And um, I mean, we share, I think it's just so many great people. I, there's just so many fantastic achievements. I think the the um, you know the shifting of all the all the research and everything to um, down here and the work that Brigato are doing. Everything is just simply amazing, and it's mm. good. And it's nailed it. Nailed it. I'm a little bit. Involved in the peripheries with the Central Otago because we've got the vineyards down there. I feel sorry for it because it's so hard because uh, you know that the process of um, – I'm not sure how to term this, but, uh, you know, the process of wanting to be loved, wanting to be admired, whatever, um, and it's pretty hard. And poor old Central um, struggles a wee bit because, it, you know, it sticks its hand up and and, and – and people will say yeah, 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 but nobody actually puts any 
um, heart and soul into it, and that, that sort of worries me a wee bit because I think it could become a very important part of the high mm. level of, of um, New Zealand wine exports. Do you mean yeah. in comparison to, say, Sauvignon Blanc being synonymous around the world with Marlborough? That kind of <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I mean, it's hard. It's a hard territory. Nobody would have ever predicted that Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc would become a world phenomena, really. Nobody would have actually predicted that because it didn't really, it doesn't fit, you know, people don't go, oh, I must go and look for a good Sauvignon Blanc. You're always looking for a good Chardonnay or a good Pinot Noir. Mm. You know, it's very rare for people to say, you know, my favourite drink is um, overseas people, Sauvignon Blanc. Mm. And that was probably the hardest thing when we were sort of exporting uh, is going to... um, um, yeah, a new territory, and um, and you bring your portfolio out, and um, and they're mostly looking for Chardonnay. Were looking for Chardonnay, um, mm. or things like that. Like Riesling was probably quite popular. Um, nobody really asked for Sauvignon Blanc until that Marlborough became synonymous, and and there was the factors that did that. Mm. And uh, um, whereas. Um, uh, Ernie Hunter was certainly the the founder of really the Sauvignon phenomena, really, with his escapades in the UK. I, I think certainly Clady Bay have to take credit for mm. um, making the popularity of it. So there's certainly no doubt about that. Mm, wonderful. So thanks very much. It's been an amazing um, 50 years, and it's extraordinary that you've been there for the whole thing. Yeah, I'm the only dinosaur. I think I'm the only person that's actually – Started and well, my first day I think was August 17, um, 1973, so um, or thereabouts, um, and still in the wine industry, so um, in some form, either it, um, so there's a few others that should be, but have come and gone and everything else, but I think I'm the only person that's continually worked in the wine industry, so fantastic. Thank you very much. To end, can you give me some inspiration for the weekend, a wine and food match? You've had 50 years trying it, so. <laughs> Actually, it was a bit of a hard one because I'm a bit of a picky eater. Um, I eat mostly fruit and, and, and vegetables, but well, one of my favourites is that sort of Texas smoked um, beef brisket, you know, properly smoked. Um, that would be my f- go-to um for looking for something different for this sort of winter anyway, and, of course, a central Pinot. Central Otago Pinot. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, and by the way, I'm sure someone will hear this and offer you a job in radio before you know it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm sure. Yeah. yeah I think I'm a bit past it. Yeah. <laughs> So that was Alan Scott. A big thanks to him for coming in and sharing his stories of the past 50 years in Marlborough's wine industry. Thanks too to Marcus for talking a little bit about what Wine Marlborough's doing um, this month. This is 50 years since Montana planted its first vineyards here in August 1973. Uh, there was some talk then about how wines from here would make uh, would be world famous, but I'm not sure that anyone realised that they would. To read more stories about the past 50 um, extraordinary years, um, you could look at Tessa Nicholson's book, 50 Years, 50 Stories, which is coming out this month and promises to be a really great read. Uh, in this month's Wine Press, we've got a few of those stories as well, and also some of the data from um, the vintage we've just had and the uh, the export season that we've just been through, and it really is an indication of, of the extraordinary strength of the Marlborough wine story. 
This podcast was made possible by Wine Marlborough and River Sun Nursery. Thank you very much to them. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time.